So I figured, as we dive into the book of Nehemiah together, that it would be a lot easier for you to watch that history than me to explain all that to you, and you had to get tired of my voice. I love it because it ends in such a correct manner, that it ends with a, a disappointment, but with a hopeful disappointment. And it ends in a way that its sole purpose, I always say this, the, the, the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to set the stage and to point towards the coming of Jesus. And what we see in this disappointment, and what we see in this need for a heart change, we see that the law and our attempt to fulfill the law by ourselves doesn't work. Jesus comes and he fulfills the law. Jesus comes and he's the answer for the hope, the messianic need that we have. And he fulfills the law, and then in his body, in his death, he takes upon the punishment of the law. So that now we can live freely under the law with a righteous God. So this book, I know a lot of you guys, so there's a kind of trend in the church nowadays to kind of avoid the Old Testament. Now here at Waypoint Church, if you don't, aren't aware of this, we have a kind of policy or a system that we operate in. We go from a book in the Old Testament, we go through a series on, then we go to the book of the New Testament series, then we go back to the Old Testament, and then we go back to the New Testament. So we go back and forth. And so we just finished up a series in the New Testament. Well, actually, we just finished our series in Vision, but before that, we were in the New Testament. We're back in the Old Testament today, but there's so much depth, so much rich, richness in the Old Testament that I don't want us to miss. I remember when I was a kid, I was in, not a kid, I was like, well, I guess I was a kid. I was in high school, and I started getting passionate about the Word of God. And there was this pastor that I loved, and I heard him preach one time, and I asked him, you know, okay, I want to study in the book of Revelation. Because that's like what everybody wanted to read about. It was like, oh, like just left behind books were coming out. And, you know, everybody talked about like Mark of the Beast. We're like, what does that mean? What's going on? What is all this stuff? And you watch all the horror movies as a kid. And so you're like, what's going on? I want to know about this. So he said, okay, no problem. So I got so excited. I got my friends together. And I started trying to read the book by myself. Showed up in Sunday school. And he was going to lead this study in the book of Revelation. And he spent the next hour and a half in Genesis. And I was like, Okay, this is good, and I love this, but at the end of the class, I walked up to him, and I said, hey, I'm glad that we're studying the Bible, but this is very disappointing here. I thought we were going to learn about the book of Revelation. What are we doing in Genesis? And he just said, you'll have no clue. You have no idea what anything means in the book of Genesis if you don't know the rest of the book, if you don't know the rest of the Bible. So that's a quick little kind of tidbit to say, don't just stay in the New Testament. Read the whole book. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. amen. So growing up, I loved hearing about stories of heroes of the past and great reformers facing impossible odds, yet still racing into danger, overcoming, and winning. I love these stories. I love the idea of a small fellowship going to Mordor. I loved hearing about a small resistance force fighting an empire. I love, I love admitting how much of a nerd I am by the people laughing. I love reading about a Catholic priest who nailed a thesis to a door leading to a great reformation. See, I love these stories, and growing up, I wanted to be one of these people. I wanted to face great odds. I wanted to be a hero. I wanted to be a, a reformer, someone who changes the world, who, who causes great things to happen. And I'll admit, in my backyard of my house, I used to train with a sword all the time, pretending to be a hero. And yes, I did that all the way through high school, so I was really cool. Something happens along the way as you live life. You start thinking that these type of people are really rare, and you're not ever meant to be one of them. You start living life, and you really just kind of just start surviving rather than doing the dreams that you had as a kid, right? You get told 
you get told you're too old to start wielding a sword in your backyard or that you're making people nervous. Real life happens, and in real life, you discover that there really kind of aren't that many heroes and reformers, that you're just kind of a regular person, right? It's kind of a sad state. Growing up, I always thought I was going to be that hero, and then real life happens, and you're like, you're just a normal dude. Can I tell you something? Here at Waypoint Church, let me tell you that we think that is a bunch of baloney. By the way, have you ever tried spelling baloney before? I did that. I, I, have no, I don't know what I wrote there, but it's supposed to be baloney. It's a bunch of baloney because at Waypoint Church, we believe and think differently. We think that every one of you, every single member, is called to be a missionary. It's called to be a kingdom advancer, to be heroes, and to be reformers. We believe that God is weaving your story and our story together. And in these stories, you are heroes living out your calling, which is the mission of God. Doing what God has called you to do where he's called you to do it. That's what I believe you guys are. That's what I believe we're all meant to be. We're meant to be heroes in this story that God's weaving. We're meant to be heroes because we're called to this incredible mission that God has specifically made you, uniquely made you to fulfill. So you are the hero. Let's look at the book of Nehemiah and we see what allowed him and what called him to be a reformer and a hero. For starters, Nehemiah was a high official in the court of the Persian Empire. He was King Artaxerxes' cupbearer. Now, I know that doesn't sound like much, but that's a very important position. The king basically trusted the cupbearer with his life. The cupbearer tasted all the food and wine for the king to make sure the king wasn't poisoned, which I think was a common occurrence back then. The cupbearer had to be one of the most trusted men in the kingdom, not only due to the, the testing of whether it's poison or not, but also to the proximity he had with the king. He was always with the king. He was in all the king's meetings, all the king's strategy sessions, all the king's important gatherings of the council. He was there at all of it. He knew everything that was happening. So the cupbearer wasn't just somebody who, I don't care if he dies to test my food and drink, but it was a position of note, it was a position of, of worth, of high esteem. But what's crazy, it's even crazier that Nehemiah is the one that had this prestigious position. See, the biggest reason being that Nehemiah was from a conquered people. Nehemiah's people were conquered by the Persian Empire, so you would think that of all people, Nehemiah would have motive to, to think ill, to, to wish ill upon the king. Yet somehow he was able to overcome this thing and earn full and complete trust of the king. I mean, think about it. It's, it's like placing somebody that you've conquered, you've been beating up, you've been bullying their whole life, and then somehow you can still trust that person with your life. There had to be something special about Nehemiah. We, like Nehemiah, are not in a country of our own citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. So I want you to get this. Not only was Nehemiah a conquered people, but he was a foreigner in this court. So there was something about Nehemiah, something about the way he lived, something about his character, something about his integrity that was able to overcome not being from the same country, but not only not being from the same country, but being from a conquered country. He lived in such high integrity, such high character, that he was so well thought of in this state. Now I want you to hear this, like Nehemiah, we are also not citizens of the land we live in. Hear me very well when I say that. We, like Nehemiah, are not citizens in the land we live in. Our citizenship, if you're a follower of Jesus, part of his covenant family, our citizenship is in heaven. 
We're sojourners here on earth. We're immigrants to this, this nation. We are aliens here. Knowing this, how are we to live? We're supposed to live the way Nehemiah did. See this example of Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived in a land that was not his own, in a country that was not his own. He was brought, he was actually born and raised in that country, but his family was from somewhere else, a conquered people. We are living in a land that is not our own. Hear me, your number one identifying factor is that not that you're an American. Can you hear me that? The one most important factor about who you are is not that you're an American, it's that you're a follower of Jesus. That's so much more important. That's of infinite more worth. Your citizenship is in heaven. So you are a foreigner in this land. You're an alien in this place. And how is your conduct, how are you supposed to live in this place the way Nehemiah did? In 1 Peter 2.12, it says this. And we'll put it on the screen. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. We see in Nehemiah a man of high character and living in amongst the foreign people. I want you to hear this very well. We see in Nehemiah an example for us of how we're supposed to live in a, as aliens in this land. I was talking to the, um, the director of World Relief, a friend of ours, Adam. And Adam was talking to me and he was talking about how, you know, Lawrence, I'll be honest with you, a lot of the people who work with refugees in the community, they think negatively of Christians. And I was like, well, what, are you, what, are you, what are you talking about? He says, I don't know. A lot of, a lot of, the, a lot of people who work with refugees think Christians are just kind of a lot of bluster, a lot of talk, but they don't really do anything. But, and this is, I, I just, he was just, I think he was doing this because he was, you know, I bought him lunch. He was just saying nice things about Waypoint, but I hope it wasn't just because of that. But he was saying, but... I get to use what you guys do at Waypoint and say, not these Christians. They love refugees well. They welcome them. And they show the love of Christ to them. So when they want to say negative things about Christians, I just say, look at them. What can you say? And I looked at Adam, and I had a tear in my eye. And I said, I'll buy you any lunches you want, man. Um, Guys, what we're called to do, as Nehemiah did, as we live as sojourners in the land, that there are people who always speak ill of us. There will always be a case. But we're supposed to live in such a way, with such high integrity, such high character, that no matter how much ill you want to speak of us, there's nothing you can say. Do you see? That we give them no ammunition in the way we live, so we live with honor and respect in the community. And this is one of the, the, the trademarks, one of the characteristics of a person who is called to be a hero living in a foreign land. See, that's what we are. We're all called, in our stories that God's called us, in this foreign land, we're called to be heroes on mission with what God's given us. We're called to be missionaries. And so the first trademark, the first characteristic, the first element of being a hero is living a life of high integrity and character. Living a life that shows the world around you that you're trustworthy. The second trademark of this is you see in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I'll read it again. It says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah hears about the status of the walls of Jerusalem, he breaks down and weeps and mourns for days. What a weird response, right? I mean, I mean, I'll give you some more info. It might even make it weirder. You see, Nehemiah has never actually been to Jerusalem before. It's not like he's remembering his hometown and he's like, oh, that McDonald's I used to go to or that drive-in I used to go to, it's gone and he's crying. That's not what's happening here. He's not remembering his old house. You know, oh, my swing, my tire swing. Oh, that's not there. No, he's not being nostalgic. He's actually never been to Jerusalem before. So that makes it even a weirder response, isn't it? It's not like he's remembering his own town. He's never been there before. He was born in exile. He was raised in exile. He lives in exile. Yet he's weeping over these broken walls. Why? It doesn't make sense. And I'll be honest with you. I've become somewhat of, more of a crier as I've gotten older. Uh, I'll watch some you know, things on TV or YouTube. And I'll, a tear will form in my eye now that I have a child. It's, I'll admit it. But this doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you cry over walls? What Nehemiah is weeping is because he knows what the walls and gate of Jerusalem are supposed to represent. They represent the fortress, the refuge, the kingdom of God. They represent the promise that God made to Abraham, to Moses, and to David, that, that he will be their God and they will be his people, that they will be a blessing to the nations, that righteousness will endure, and that they will be a safe haven. Nehemiah weeps because he is passionate for the kingdom of God. Can I tell you the second trademark, the second characteristic of a person who's called to be a hero of this story, of the mission that God's placed them on, is they're called to be passionate for the kingdom of God. Those of us who are called Christians need to echo this sentiment of Nehemiah. We need to be so passionate for the advancement of his kingdom that we weep and mourn over places where it seems to have stopped. We need to pray for its movement all across the nations. We need to have such a fervor for the kingdom. Do you? Guys, we're not saying the characteristics of you being this incredible hero isn't that you know how to wield a lightsaber. And I'm not saying for you to be like, this incredible hero is you have to be the strongest or the, the toughest. What we're saying is the trademarks of being a, a, a hero, a reformer, a mission, on mission for God is one, a person of high character. Two, you need to be passionate for what God is passionate about. You need to be passionate for the kingdom of God's advancement. Do you weep when you read places where there are no missionaries there? They've never heard the name of Jesus. Does that bring you to tears? Do you mourn when you see places where I'll, I'll, this is something that we talked about at the Yates Association. I'm on the executive team of the Yates Association, which is the local association of churches. And one of the things that we were talking about is the percentage of churches that are closing right now in, in not, not just the United States, but actually just this Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, Cary area. And we were sitting there, and we were, it's, it, it felt almost like just tossing numbers out there. Oh, 25% of churches are about to close in and, and, and our association, and you know, 35%, 25% isn't correct. I can't remember what the exact number was. I'm just throwing out random numbers at this point, but something along those lines. I think 10% are, are about to close, and 25% are 
uh, what we consider dying. And we were just throwing those numbers around, talking about what do we need to do, what's, what's going on. But we just, at one point, I remember just looking at each other. We all just kind of looked around. These are pastors and leaders in the room. And we just stopped and we were just floored by that. And we were moved to pray. Are we floored? Are we, are we moved? Are we passionate about the kingdom of God? Do we want to see it move? Do we want to see Jesus' name, his rule and reign, reach the ends of the earth? We talked about one of our purposes of our church is, is, is missions. And our passion for missions exists, guys, not because, you know, it's, it's our duty, not because it's just something we're supposed to do. Our passion for mission exists because our passion for Jesus is huge. And we want to see every tribe, every tongue, Bow and kneel and worship the name of Jesus. We want to see his name magnified in every tribe, tongue, and language in the world. Our passion for the kingdom of God is huge because we want to see the rule and reign of Jesus all across the earth, all across the world. Because he's king and he is worthy. Do you have a passion for the kingdom of God? The third component that we see here is we need to be a people of prayer. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah was a person of deep, committed prayer. When he heard the news of the wall, he was overcome with emotion and led him straight to prayer. Are you praying? Are you so passionately moved by the kingdom and its advancement that you're praying? We see over and over again that God chooses to move through the prayers of his people. Are you praying for his move? And if not, what are you waiting for? This is a time for us to pray fervently and earnestly and passionately. Now is the time for more prayer. It says in Nehemiah that he was praying day and night for somewhere between three to five months. We see that later in chapter two because it gives you the exact time of when everything happens. It wasn't a one-time prayer and then looking to God and saying, okay, I prayed, do your thing. Three to five months of day and night praying and fasting and weeping and mourning. We say at Waypoint Church, one of our plumb lines is prayer is God's appointed means of enacting his will. If we believe that, are you praying? Are we praying to see disciples being raised? Are we praying to see workers? Guys, the Bible says this, that the harvest is great. But what, what's it say after that? Say that again? The workers are few. But what's it say right after that? Pray for what? To send more workers. Do you guys hear that? The Bible flat out says that the harvest is here and it's great, but there's an issue. The workers are few. But then what, it doesn't say, okay, then go be a worker. What's it say? It says Pray. Pray. For the God of the harvest to send the workers. Guys, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this with everything inside of my heart. And this is something that's not just a message that I'm trying to give to you. This is a message I need to speak to myself because I need to be reminded over and over again to pray. 
is that if we believe this is God's appointed means of enacting his will, and we want to see his will come because where the kingdom of God advances, there is justice and righteousness, and the fatherless has a father. And justice flows on the streets, and grace is given, and the oppressed are set free. Then we need to be praying fervently. Not one time, not one day, not one gathering, but every day. Every day for the kingdom to advance. Every day for the God of the harvest to send workers. Every day for him to expand the rule and reign of Jesus on this earth as it is in heaven. There's also the way Nehemiah prayed is also so very noteworthy. He starts with, O Lord God of heaven. This is actually a favorite designation of Nehemiah. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He begins with God, and he ends his prayer with God, with those who delight to fear your name. What a beautiful, kind of non-modern-day statement that is. What are the people of God like? They're those who delight to fear God's name. Delight and fear in the same sentence, in the same phrase. I love that. See, it's all about God. When, when the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. We're struggling with prayer. Help us. How are we supposed to pray? Honestly, Jesus could have been like, go read Nehemiah 1. But he says this. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how you pray. You begin with God. Some people have heard it said, have you guys heard of something called Acts? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Have you guys heard that before? What I'm about to share with you is actually very similar. Is that you start with God. It could be called adoration. It could be hallowing. You could be lifting it up. But you start with understanding who God is. He is the great and awesome one. I love that, by the way. Great and awesome. I, use, I love that word awesome because that's the kind of person I am. I like to say stuff like, like Gina hates it. Like I'm like extra superlative guy. You know, things aren't just like, oh, that's good. It's like, oh my gosh, that was the best thing ever. You know, or that was so awesome. That's the kind of person I am. And I love that because Nehemiah is saying he's not just, he's the great God. He's saying, no, he's a great and awesome. He's confessing, he's, he's adoring God. He's lifting up who he is. And that's how prayer starts. He starts off with lifting up who God is. Then it moves to confession. It goes from adoration to confession. In verse 7, it says, we've acted very corruptly. And notice what I love what Nehemiah does here. It's not just that Israel that has sinned, but he himself has sinned. There's Israel, then there's we, then there's an I. He puts himself right with them. He takes corporate, collective responsibility for the sins of God's people. He saying the reason we're in this mess is that all of us in Jerusalem, because we've sinned, and he's confessing his sin as Jesus taught his disciples, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I love this. He's not just taking responsibility for himself. And he's not just saying, well, those people sinned, so forgive them their sins. He's saying all of us, me, them, all of us, we've sinned. Guys, we've turned so much of even sin and owning sin in America to be an individualistic thing, Right? But there is also a corporate identity to owning sin. And I want you to hear that. He confesses sin. But then there's repentance. 
So typically, if he goes Acts, Adoration, Confession, then it would go to uh, Thanksgiving. But in this one, Nehemiah goes straight to Adoration, Confession, to Repentance. Let's talk about repentance, about just as sin is the cause of trouble, so the way back to blessing is to repent of that sin. So in his prayer, he's talking about we will leave our sin and cleave to the Lord. There's an open confession of sin, but in this confession of sin, he's actually turning back to the Lord. And lastly, there's a request or supplication. Summarizing verse 11, it says, Have mercy. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. In the sight of this man, literally, he's actually praying, is in the sight of Artaxerxes, who is the king of Persia, who has stopped the rebuilding work of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah literally understands that he's in an extraordinary position of influence with this king. And he's literally asking God, God, we've sinned. It's our fault. We've messed up. But we're asking you, in, with your favor, with, by your will, will you give me favor with this king? Knowing that, God, you're sovereign over even this king. So God, if you will, will you give me favor over this king? And I'm not sure how Nehemiah fully understood how this was going to happen. But we see in chapter 2 that the king actually, for some strange reason, looks at Nehemiah and says, notices that he's kind of sad, which is a dangerous thing, by the way. Because in the book of Esther, it said that you couldn't even look sad amongst the king because if you did, he might bring him down. And if you brought him down, he'll just order you to die. But Nehemiah looked sad, and King um, uh, Artaxerxes noticed it, and instead of striking him dead, said, hey, why are you sad? And then Nehemiah prays again, and then with boldness says, I'm sad because of the status of the walls of Jerusalem. You see how in this confession, of this pr in this prayer, God, while he prayed for six months, it wasn't right away, but God answered his prayer, and gave him favor in the sight of Artaxerxes. He waited patiently for the Lord. He climbed onto me and heard my prayer. He is waiting, waiting in prayer, waiting earnestly for the presence of God. Nehemiah was a person of prayer, and God uses people of prayer. You see, so far we have... How do you be a hero in your story? How do you be a reformer? How are you called to be a missionary? How do you live in a foreign land? You're called, one, to live with high integrity and character. Two, to be a person who is passionately in love with the kingdom. Three, to be a person of prayer. And the last component is, is one who knows the word and one who knows the Bible. In the content of his prayers in verses 5 through 11, Nehemiah shows that he understands scriptures and wants to see it fulfilled. Nehemiah's prayer, as you've heard read, is found also, you can actually see a lot of the teaching found in Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. I'll put that on the screen real quick. When your father, when you, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will soon utterly perish in the land that, you're going, that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. 
but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the later days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You see here in Nehemiah's prayer, he's, he's exactly repeating the learning here in Deuteronomy. He's saying, okay, we've sinned like Deuteronomy said we were going to. And when we did that, what happened? He exiled us. He scattered us to the nations where we had to serve these other people. But your word also says that if we turn back to you, you are merciful. Leviticus 4, 26 to 31. I'm not going to read all this again. We'll put it up on the screen for now. But it's another passage where it's see that Nehemiah is living out the fulfillment of what God promised when he said he would scatter Israel, exiling them among the nations. He's literally experienced, he knows the word so well that when he prays, he's praying God his promises. And it shows Nehemiah is a man whose whole prayer is rooted in scripture. Do you want the strength of character to live as an exile well? Do you want a passion for the kingdom of God? Do you want to be a person of prayer? Read and dive into the scripture. I'll say that again. The first three components all fit together because if you do the fourth component well, it'll help you and build the first three components. That if you want to be a person who lives with high integrity and high character, and if you want to be a person who has a passion for the kingdom of God, and if you want to be a person who who prays and earnestly and fervently prays, can I tell you that, guys, you need to dive and read Scripture. Do you hear that? And it's not because when you read the Bible, all of a sudden a magic thing happens, you get into a trance-like state, and all of a sudden it's, uh, it fills you up with something. No, it's because it is the very words of God for you. Because the Bible can show us more and more the nature of who this incredible God is and this beautiful work and story of salvation and redemption. And when we dive into Scripture, we dive into more of who Jesus is and we fall deeper in love with him. You know, Gene and I, um, yesterday, we got to just kind of run a bunch of errands together. Well, actually, the last two days, we had a lot of errands. <laughs> Like getting a flu shot and buying clothes and buying presents for, uh, for gifts and, you know, going grocery shopping and just, just a bunch of silly little errands, right? And somehow you don't realize errands take so much time. But, you know, at the end of the time together, Josiah's in the back in the car seat, Gina's sitting next to me, and we're just kind of driving. And as I'm driving, we spent all day together, and we're just kind of talking about everything from, like, work to, to you know, I don't know, work to church to practice to Josiah to schools to whatever. And we're just talking, hanging out, just driving, talking, hanging out, driving, stopping at Target, stopping at BJ, stopping at the church, stopping, just going everywhere. And at the end of the day, I just remember just kind of, I just remember just, I kind of looked at him like, this is nice. This is nice. Most people are like, I hate running errands. Why did you say this was nice? There's just something so sweet about spending time together. Even though we've been married, even though we live together, there's something so sweet when you spend time with someone you love and you realize there's so much more to learn about that person. Guys, there's, can I tell you, I don't care if you're 10, if you're 50, if you're 150, there's still so much to learn about God. 
And the number one place, the great gift that he's given us is he's given us his word. We need to be in it. We need to be reading and we need to be studying. We need to be meditating. We need to say, God, the more of you, it changes who I am. The more I know of you, it changes who I am. It gives me a fervor for the kingdom. It gives me the characteristics that I need to know and possess and walk in and the disciplines in doing that. It gives me a desire to pray because I can pray your promises and believe them to be true. Guys, can't tell you that all these characteristics of a hero, of, of a reformer, can be loved into. Guys, can you get into your word? You know, I joke about how I had to be put away my sword. You know, now that people make fun of me for being an adult wielding a sword, and they mock me or say I make them nervous. You guys, I, for me, I love it the fact that the Bible is called a sword. Right? Right? Some of you guys are like, Lawrence, that's ridiculous. I like it. <laughs> that works for me. I get to have a sword again. Guys, guys, God has called you to be the hero of the mission he's given you. He's called you to be the missionary. He's called you on mission. Every one of you uniquely created for the mission he's placed you. Every one of you uniquely to be hero of the story that he's written for you. May you be a person of high character who's passionately in love with the kingdom, who fervently prays because they are in the word. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the words of Nehemiah and the example of someone who lives in exile. God, we thank you that in the midst of of this, you saw a man of integrity and character because he was a man who dove into your word, who knew your promises, so that led him to be a person of prayer, led him to be passionate for your kingdom. God, may that be us in this day. As we live as sojourners and aliens in this world, may we live in su with such integrity that everybody looks at us, they have nothing bad to say, and glorifies you in the last days. God, may we be people who are so passionate for the kingdom of God that we weep when it's not advancing, that we are willing to do whatever it takes to see it advance. God, may we be people who are so, so fervent in prayer, God, because we believe in your promises. God, may we be people who seek out prayer all the time. Pray day and night. And God, may we be people who dive into your word and know you better. In Jesus' name, amen.